Well, you know, we've got a growing body of uh, ranchers that are very powerful in the state because they control vast acreages of land, important land, you know, the the watersheds, the riparian zones, the connective, uh, the connectivity corridors, the birthing grounds, the winter range for so many species, and they are really starting to embrace the concepts of regenerative agriculture. I mean, that's very, very positive. You've tuned in to How It Looks From Here, life in the time of climate change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work, and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters. So we offer these interviews as ways of giving us all new ideas and inspiration for making our way forward together. I'm Mary Claire, and today I'm talking with Lil Erickson, a lifelong advocate and innovator for healthy ecosystems. For nearly 30 years, Lil has been a leader and champion for sustainable regenerative agriculture as the executive director of the Western Sustainability Exchange, an organization she dreamt up and founded in 1994. Professionally and personally, Lil is thoroughly devoted to the health of land, air, and water. She understands the ultimate connection between ecological health and the health of humans and animals. This understanding reveals strategic ways for supporting ranchers and farmers of the West as they learn ways to weave agricultural practices with carbon sequestration, leading to maximum nourishment for livestock and food harvests. As a result, rural economies are fortified and health improves for everyone who consumes the foods coming from rural areas. Lil's work truly comes straight from her heart. Her deep and unwavering love for the beings of this planet is the solid ground of her actions. Okay, we can start now. Oh, I'm so glad to have you here as our guest, Lil Erickson. It's great to see you again, <laughs> and it's great to have you here for this conversation. It's great to be here, and I'm honored that uh, you would think that we have something important to say to your wonderful listeners. Well, I know that you do. Um, this is what I know about you. I know that for almost 30 years, since 1994, you have formally been the executive director, maybe at the beginning you weren't, didn't take that name, but you founded and have been the executive director of the Western Sustainability Exchange. And that that organization has been devoted to supporting ranchers, and I, I, I think also farmers um, in, in the West uh, to make better choices in terms of the health of soil, and that that in turn has made things better for the livestock and the 
food products that they are generating. Do I have that right? Uh, you do. I mean, we started out really working with members of the food system, so it was broader than just farmers and ranchers. It was also, you know, the people who um, process the food and prepare the food and sell us the food. And yes, these practices that we advocate, regenerative practices, are really good. They start with improving soil health, but then so much comes from that that are you know benefiting the nutrition of our food the well-being of our communities the health of our landscape the increasing our wildlife uh, populations and biodiversity protecting key habitats increasing water availability there's just so many benefits um, and they also increase um, agricultural producers bottom line and so over the years we've become more specific to ranching because there's so much more land involved in a ranch and because our core competency is what they call it our core competency is really much more in the ranching area than in the farming area not not that farming isn't important it's very very important but um, our board and staff and volunteers have greater experience in ranching and so would you explain to the people who are listening what, in case, I mean, I think everybody's heard the term uh, regenerative or restorative agriculture, but just in case, would you run us through that again, what that's about? So regenerative practices are practices that work with nature and actually improve the health of the soil by um, using, integrating livestock in op in operations because this landscape evolved with millions and millions of grazing animals and so it needs the land here needs the impact of these animals as long as it's not continuous so in regenerative grazing for example what you would do instead of turning livestock out on a pasture for an entire season, which is the common practice. I mean, ranchers check on their, their animals to make sure they're okay, but they don't really move them around. Whereas with regenerative grazing, the cattle are bunched up in tighter herds, much the way the bison moved across the landscape, and they're moved often. So you get a much better grazing of the entire pasture because cattle tend to be selective grazers and you know they're like me i like to eat what i like to eat and i don't eat what i don't like to eat unless i'm forced to um, and so that's sort of with cattle too you sort of confine them in a smaller area and they get much better utilization of the pasture their hooves break up the soil capping so that the soil is more the ground is more receptive to the nutrients that they provide through their manure and urine, which is actually very good. It's it's a natural fertilizer. And then um, that creates the nutrients for the microorganisms in the soil to prosper. It also breaks up the soil capping so you get better infiltration of the water so that the rain and the snow is actually captured and doesn't run off nearly as much. And then you move the cattle off. And so a big part of it is then you let that land, that pasture, rest. And in that resting, the ground absorbs those nutrients and lengthens those uh, root systems. And those plants, it covers, it gets much better coverage of the plants across the pasture. That increases the amount of photosynthesis that can happen, which means it's capturing CO2 out of the atmosphere, 
releasing those oxygen atoms, pulling that carbon atom into the plant and combining it with water, turning it into a sugar that feeds the plant, that feeds the roots, that feeds the microorganisms. The microorganisms also have like fine root-like structures that go even more deeply than the roots of the plant, all the way down to the minerals that are often very, very deep in the soil. And they essentially trade the minerals for the sugar. It's like a, a commerce. I've heard it described as this commerce within the, the ground where the plant provides the sugar microorganisms need. They, in turn, provide the nutrients and the protection of the root shafts. It's a very cool thing. But that is like one uh, benefit of regenerative practices that are around grazing. Other regenerative practices are uh, coming into alignment with nature's birthing cycles. So instead of having calves in February uh, when no other animal is having a baby, um, you move the cycle to when nature is having babies because in that way you have more forage naturally for the mother cow so that they're grazing more, whereas in uh, much more winter birthing you're, you're having to feed uh, a lot more. You're having to worry about calves being born in really severe conditions. You need a lot more labor. I often have a lot more vet bills. Um, and the reason that ranchers do that is that you have a heavier calf go into the sales barn at the end of the season in, in the fall. But that calf does weigh more than the calf that's born in May or June. But there's so much money that goes into caring for the mother and the calf in a really harsh condition than in the condition when nature is having lots of babies and there's lots of forage. And so that's another regenerative practice is coming into alignment with nature's cycles, especially around birthing. Um, <laughs> So let me let me stop for a second and and just make sure I'm following you. So so one of the regenerative practices is, and I'm going to be far less um, sophisticated, I think, <laughs> in my rendering than you were. But I just want to make sure that I and the the listeners are getting it, is to encourage ranchers to let their herds of cattle be more like the bison were and to be in pastures more shoulder to shoulder for a while so that they're stomping around and they have to eat what's there because that's where they are. And they're, they're also stomping around and they're peeing and they're pooping. And that is putting a lot of nourishment into the soil. Correct. Right. And when the soil is nourished, then the grasses are able to grow deep, the, their roots far deeper, and the microorganisms that are helping the grasses grow deeper are able to reach clear down to the mineral deposits way deep, and that brings even more into those grasses and makes that stronger. Um, so that's one thing that you talked about. Let's stop there for a second because I want to know, um, I have come to understand that Native grasses are more likely to come back, correct? Rather than um, more invasive grasses that have, in some way, taken hold across the West, correct? Um, can you say more about that? Well, the native grasses evolved with this landscape and evolved with herd impact, 
and they also have much deeper root systems. I mean, it's amazing. You can find native plants that have five feet of of root systems. It, it, it's pretty amazing if you ever dig up dig up one. We we did some um, demonstrations. We dug up uh, sweet clover, and we had you know, four and a half feet of root on a sweet clover plant compared to some of the other, what most people consider, you know, consider uh, preferred grazing plants. So um, they have, they're better suited to this landscape and and that makes them, the deeper the root system makes them more adaptable to changing climatic conditions, which is really important. Um, they also can spread and what we want is we want to to diminish the amount of bare ground as much as possible because bare ground is volatizing carbon, uh-huh. whereas covered ground is photosynthesizing and pulling carbon dioxide out of the air, but it's also cooling the ground and it's cooling the air because of the shading. So um, native grasses are very important. So is, is clover a native here in the West? In some places, I think it is, yeah. Mm-hmm. In some places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that's what you would see come back with this kind of grazing. And then once they've been there a while, you move them to another pasture, and, mm-hmm. and the first one gets to recover. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so I think, I think I understand that one. The next one mm-hmm. is to move the um, birthing time from February, which up here in Montana, my goodness, it's cold, to something that's more consistent with what's happening. And I I know that when I've been able to get over the pass into the Lamar Valley in May, I often see teeny-weeny little bison babies mm-hmm. popping along behind their mm-hmm. parents. So is May or the the time that that the animals would of this uh, biosystem would usually have their babies? Yeah, yeah, May, early June, yeah. Uh-huh. And And that with that, there's uh the the calves might not weigh as much when it comes to market time right but the total cost will be less could be a lot less is is there an economic then uh benefit from that practice that you're seeing is that a demonstrable economic benefit absolutely and that's really what's compelling a lot of ranchers to make the move to changing their um their calving times is because of the economic benefit, but it it entails some risk uh, because you have to you know really dramatically change your operation, and a lot of times the operating loans um, are not set up quite to facilitate that. So there's risk that a rancher takes to do that, but there's also the benefit of um, reduced operating costs and increased production of grasses. That's really one thing that happens with regenerative practices. We see so much more vitality in the pastures and in the grasslands. And so you have more grass. You can actually run more cattle and have um, a positive impact with that, which increases their bottom line as well as the reduced operating costs. How do the cattle do um, with the calving later on? Good. Is there fewer maternal fatality problems? Well, you know, they're out, they're grazing. They're grazing on new grasses, which are very nutritious. So, um, and the conditions aren't so harsh. So, you know, you don't have to have night calvers that are watching them all the time in case something happens. I mean, you do have to watch, especially, you know, the young mothers, Mm -hmm. um, because they can have trouble. Um, but, but it's just less intensive. Yeah. 
and they're out on pasture. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm curious about that. There's another term that I've heard used a lot associated with regenerative agricultural practices, and that is carbon sequestration. Mm-hmm. And of course, that's a term that's used more generally. And you were referring to that. That's what happens. Say just a little bit more about that, the benefits of these practices. Yeah, so the way uh, a carbon atom is sequestered into the ground is through photosynthesis. So it's uh, when you have a lot of carbon dioxide in the air, that's a molecule of two oxygen and one, uh, and one carbon atom. And so through photosynthesis that the plants do, and so the healthier the plants are, the more plants there are, the more photosynthesis you have. Also, so the... The plant, when photosynthesizes, breaks that molecule, releases the two oxygen atoms into the atmosphere. Yay, we need that. Mm-hmm. Takes that carbon molecule or atom and combines it with, with water. And that's what creates this sugar. And it moves through the plant and it feeds the plant with sugar. And then it, the plant gets healthier and healthier. That lengthens those roots, lengthens those roots. And so that carbon molecule or atom is making its way all the way through the plant, through the root systems. And then it's uh, the excess sugar that the plant doesn't need, they release into the soil where the microorganisms are like, yeah, that's what we need. And then the microorganisms, especially fungi, have these long root-like structures that are very, very thin, much thinner than a plant root that can go deeply into the ground. And so they're pulling that carbon atom all the way down, all the way down. Um, and so it's considered sequestered, depending on who you talk to, and believe me, the soil scientists get into a big fight over this, but about a meter deep is when the carbon markets consider that sequestered, which is pretty safe in the ground. That means that general um, movement across the ground wouldn't volatize that carbon. Um, so, And then that's when it becomes a an asset um, that can be valued in the marketplace. That is the basis of a carbon credit, is that... Well, and I wanted you to say more about that. Yeah. What does that mean? Because that's something that's really come forward in rural economies, but I don't think a lot of people who aren't in rural economies understand that, unless they're experts in the area. Right. Well, it's complicated. So just, you know, think about... um, well, think about gold. So the gold is lodged in the ground and it is considered an asset and it has value. Of course, in the in any kind of mineral like that, the value is achieved by digging it up. But with carbon, the value is to have that carbon stay deep into the ground, providing the the benefits that it provides when it's in the ground. And instead of the rancher getting paid to dig up the carbon they are actually paid to keep the carbon in the ground for long periods of time so with our carbon project what happens is that ranchers sign a long-term contract guaranteeing that for 30 years they are going to keep the land in an undeveloped state using regenerative practices so that the that carbon so there's a lot more carbon atoms being drawn 
um, down deeply to the ground and they're kept there. And so we, there are ways to measure what the baseline amount of carbon is when they start the project and then how it increases over time. And they are paid based on the amount of additional carbon that they keep in the ground. It's a really cool thing. It's wonderful. And so that carbon, when it's um, sequestered or, or drawn mm -hmm. deeply into mm -hmm. the ground, a meter into the ground. Captured. Mm -hmm. is continues to serve the function of exciting and nourishing the uh, microorganisms? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that keeps the whole system thriving mm -hmm. at a, a pretty high clip. Mm -hmm. It does. It, it increases the root production of the plants. It increases the ability of the plants to cover bare ground. It increases the health of the plant to grow taller and photosynthesize even more. So it, it just increases photosynthesis, which is drawing the CO2 out of the air. And that in return also, I, I think I've, I've heard, check me on this one, um, makes it so that the roots of the grasses retain more water so that they're more drought resistant? Is that correct? Yeah, so two ways that it improves it, just through the action of grazing and breaking up the soil capping, the, the ground becomes more permeable, and then the microorganisms increase the permeability of it too, and then they become more macroorganisms, like you have worms and various things that actually create channels in the soil so that you have more percolation of the water, then the fungi um, wraps can wrap this sort of a slimy uh, membrane around the root systems uh, so that if you pull up a plant and you hold it up and it has really clean roots, like very, you know, just clean roots, you're not having very many microorganisms there. But if you pull one up and it looks like it has dreadlocks, then you know that you've got a good biological uh, reaction going on and that, that kind of slimy film that the fungi produce are protecting the roots from, uh, from drought and also from changes in acidity and alkalinity. They, it plays a really important role. Uh, so it's a much more resilient, the grasses are much more resilient when, they're, mm -hmm. right. have, when they have the carbon down beneath them interacting with the, the microorganisms. Mm -hmm. The microorganisms play a really important role, and the ranchers uh, have started referring to them as the livestock in the ground. <laughs> the microorganisms? Mm -hmm. I like that. Because there's lots of different, you know, you have predator microorganisms and you have prey microorganisms, kind of, you know. <laughs> Pretty cool. Yeah. That's very cool. This is Mary Claire and how it looks from here. Stay with us. We'll be back after this brief break. I'm curious about what you remember as the first time that you were aware that you were completely in love with the earth and its beings. Well... I mean, I really have this memory of being nine months old, and uh, I'm covered with kittens. I I have all these kittens in my lap, and they're crawling over me. My I actually have a picture of it, so maybe the picture is what gives me the memory, but uh, how very much I love these kittens. I felt they were my family. Um, and so, you know, from a really young age, my connection with the earth was through animals and primarily um, cats 
and dogs because they're more present, you know, very deeply into our lives. And um, I just had an affinity for them. I felt I had a lot more in common with them. I uh, could see things more through their eyes. And then I had a a father that was a hard rock miner, but his uh, that was his vocation, but his avocation was nature. He loved nature. He taught my sister and me a lot about um, nature and its right to exist in and of its own um, experience, not what it produced for us. So I believe that deeply. Um, and he told me when I was little, if I just shut up and and listen that it would nature would reveal herself and I would learn more than I ever thought possible and that's been the truth and then my mom was more my dad was uh not standoffish at all towards nature but he wasn't exuding love for nature he was exuding great respect for nature my mom on the other hand loved nature and she taught my sister and me, that if you love something, you protect it, you care for it. So um, those kind of two experiences as a, as a kid, just, it for one thing, I didn't learn to be afraid of nature. My dad was great about showing me the beauty of snakes and spiders and things that are considered, you know, the maligned and misunderstood creatures. And he showed me the beauty of those, of all things. And so I feel deeply lucky not to grow up in fear of nature. So that just meant I had a deeper relationship with nature. And it's a wonderful experience. And when I, well, anytime I'm better than I, I'm a better person when I'm out in nature. (laughs) Well, and so, I mean, it's with the deepest of integrity that you've pursued your career and developed this nonprofit and and its emphasis um, that seems to really follow from what you learned as a child. <laughs> I'm curious what you would say right now, and I know this is a hard question because there's probably thousands of responses, but what's something that comes to mind right now as a great lesson you have learned from the natural world? to be diversified, to be nimble, to adjust to changes. I mean, not lament changes, but to look with clear eyes at what's happening and adjust. Um, Nature seems to do that pretty well. And the more flexible the creature it seems to be the more able they are to adjust to changes and and actually adapt and prosper, uh, whereas those that are more um, specialized or resistant um, have a much harder row and it can lead to their complete demise. So I would say that was more than one thing. <laughs> to, be, to be able to assess the situation and adapt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, that you, there was recently a flood down the street from you when the <laughs> <Yeah>. Yellowstone <laughs> River Basin flooded so badly last June, and you watched the river itself and other things adapt to that. Um, would that be an example? 
Yeah, I think so, uh, because the river course adapted to the volume of water that was coming, and uh, the animals <clears throat> adapted in whatever way they could. Um, we, of course, struggled a lot more because we had all these structures and things, but I also saw people adapting and coming together and trying to help each other and um, so that's an adaptation to our our strong herd or troop um, tendencies as a species, I think really served us in because we were helping each other. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then also just realizing, yeah, things are changing. The climate is changing and it is significant and it's way bigger than us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so ours is to adapt. Mm -hmm. That's uh, ours is to adapt, and in some ways, and what you were saying at the beginning, it matters what we do. It matters what we do. It matters what our actions are. Yeah, um, in the uh, full ecology work that Gary and I have been doing, um, one of the things that Gary's been saying is, and, and he's not the one who coined this, but he's saying it really is more accurate that it has never really been survival of the fittest but survival of the friendliest mm -hmm. survival of and in in what you're saying those who adapt most creatively mm -hmm. and with what did you say um not to resist not to stand in opposition to something like that yeah not to um let fear blind you to what's really happening and to mm -hmm. move forward you know I think we like to create these little scenarios in our head that says it's if I close my eyes enough it'll go away it's not happening it's not happening which is like yeah you're going to get hit in the face if closing your eyes to it and that's what's happening to us now um, our resistance for lots of reasons to doing anything positively 20 years ago could have changed the trajectory that we're on now. Um, but we didn't. <laughs> we didn't. We didn't do it. And so early on you said that there are some, that, that it's important for us to pay attention to the bad decisions we've made and try to rectify those. Mm -hmm. But what we're failing to do, I think you suggested this, is to pay attention to many of the things that are happening that are quite exciting and quite generative. Right. Yeah. Can you give some examples of those things that you're aware of? Well, you know, we've got a growing body of uh, ranchers that are very powerful in the state because they control vast acreages of land, important land, you know, the the watersheds, the riparian zones, the connective uh, the connectivity corridors, the birthing grounds, the winter range for so many species and they are really starting to embrace the concepts of regenerative agriculture. I mean, that's very, very positive. Um, and there's a lot of people who are realizing that we may not have these large acreages of land, but we can support what's going on by purchasing carbon offset credits or buying the beef coming from operations that are using these practices or you know, going to the farmer's market and supporting our local producers, looking in our own lives where do we have our power? We have the most power in our own lives. So how do we reduce our impacts? How do we support those that are also reducing their impacts through, you know, a commerce, through a support system? 
And that's what's happening at Western Sustainability Exchange. Yeah, because that's sort of the exchange part of our name. Right. <laughs> is right. exchanging ideas, you know, helping each other. Mm-hmm. And so in all of this, what what would you offer to listeners as uh, I kind of hesitate to use the term? I often hesitate to use the term um, advice, <laughs> yes, but I, but you know something mm-hmm. along those lines. What wisdom would you kind of leave people with at this well these days? I mean, we we all have power to make positive change, and uh, you know, looking at our lives, spending a little bit of time reflecting on where where we're having the greatest impact and where we could have the greatest positive impact and just moving forward one step at a time doesn't have to be any big thing there's something about inertia if you if you really aren't doing anything it's much harder it takes a lot more energy to propel you t- to take the first step but once you're in motion then it becomes a little easier and then to gather with people who are moving forward because then the unit uh, starts to create more of a kind of a propulsion and, and it helps pull more people along and you find wow we can even go over here and it's it's interesting to see how that can happen um, and there's lots of great things going on. We're very lucky in, in the Livingston community because there's so many wonderful organizations doing great and inspiring things. And Montana, too, you know, it is our tradition to work together. It's not our tradition to be in polarization. Um, and so to remember that and to kind of smack around the people who would like to keep us in in conflict and say, no, that's not how it is. That's not how we settled this place. We settled it working together. We settled it having our eyes wide open and thinking about what is the potential here instead of, you know, holding on desperately to the way it was. So I think, you know, looking at those parts of our heritage and finding ways that we can, in our own lives, do one little thing, and then maybe two, and then before you know it, you're doing ten. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Does the exchange work with uh, indigenous communities? Mm-hmm. We do. We've got a couple of projects, especially with the Blackfeet uh, tribes. We're working with the Pecuni Lodge and with the um, Intertribal Ag uh, Council on some different grazing projects. And you know, we're open to working with anyone, actually. So, uh, but those are two projects right off the top of my head that we're, we're really in partnership with the tribes on. Yeah, because my guess would be that these, these uh, communities that have been here from time immemorial, before European folks got here and began settling, um, had some pretty subst- substantive regenerative practices going on at the time. Do yeah, you absolutely. find that? Well, I absolutely do. We mm-hmm. have a lot to learn from them. We have a lot to learn together. Yeah. Well, and that is what Western Sustainability Exchange is doing, thanks Thank to your you. leadership. Well, there's a lot more than just me. I mean, we've got a great board. We've got a great staff. We've got a great number of wonderful people that are involved. So it's not me. It's just... You know, I'm the one that gets all the credit, but I don't deserve it. 
Well, I don't know. You deserve some of it. And I really invite all the listeners to take a look at this Western Sustainability Exchange. Get your own ideas and go out and do it for yourself because that's the way, that's what you're suggesting, right? That's your wisdom, Lil. Yeah, well, thank you. Please, uh, you know, log on to our website. We have a thing called Join the Herd. And that means just, you know, coming together and, and you get our newsletter and, you know, that we've got a lot of activities going on and ways that people could get involved if they want. Fantastic. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. This has been great. <laughs> Thank you, Mary. <laughs> You can learn more about Lil and the Western Sustainability Exchange at westernsustainabilityexchange.org. Lil and her colleagues, along with their agricultural partners, show us how to listen to the natural world, to join with it in collaborative support of the well-being of all being. They provide inspiring models for how each of us can look out on our worlds and see ways for being and belonging with the natural world of which we're always a part. During our conversation, I referred to ideas from the book Full Ecology, Repairing Our Relationship with the Natural World, authored by me and Gary Ferguson, and available in bookstores everywhere. And now before we go... A quick pitch for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share the link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the Systems Zoo. How It Looks From Here was created and produced by me, Mary Claire, and Joe LaVisca. Editing by Joe LaVisca, music by Cedar Mathers Wynn, and Gary Ferguson. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch. Yikes. There you have it. Thank you.